pray. We're thankful, Father, for this ancient letter that you have kindly given to us. And we pray now that you would open our eyes to see it rightly, to understand it. And we pray that you would cause these words to change us according to your will. It's through Christ we ask this. Amen. On the morning of August 23, 1973, an escaped convict crossed the streets of Stockholm, Sweden, and entered a bustling bank. From underneath the folded jacket he carried in his arms, John Eric Olson pulled a loaded submachine gun, fired at the ceiling, and proceeded to take four employees hostage in the vault. But this hostage situation took an unexpected turn when the captives quickly became enamored with their captor. At one point, a hostage was tied with a 30-foot rope and allowed outside the vaults when she complained about being claustrophobic. A year later, she said, although she was leashed like an animal, she remembers thinking how very kind he was to allow her to leave the vault. After Olson threatened to shoot another hostage in the leg to shake up the police, the hostage recalled thinking how kind he was to suggest that it was just my leg that he would shoot. <laughs> One of the hostages even phoned the prime minister and pleaded with him to let the robbers take her with them in the escape car. And six days later, when the police pumped tear gas into the vault, causing the perpetrators to surrender, the police called for the hostages to come out first. But they refused, and they pleaded with the police not to hurt their captors. So today, when you hear of a hostage situation that emphasizes, that, uh, to today when you hear of a hostage that empathizes more with their captor than with their rescuers, the condition is known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And the Stockholm Syndrome, in a sense, I think is an illustration of what was happening to the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul started the church in Corinth, but after leaving about 18 months later, some really impressive leaders who opposed Paul and his message came into the church, and in a sense, they took the Corinthians captive with not only their impressive and engaging personalities, but also their message of a different gospel. Paul had both taught them the truth of Christ and he lived it out. But instead of defending Paul in his absence, the church was persuaded to shift their loyalty from Paul and his message to these new teachers who were so compelling and were so attractive. The Corinthians were experiencing a spiritual Stockholm syndrome. They were enamored by the sweetness of their captors, totally oblivious that they had a gun to their head. I invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Perhaps you still have it open. If not, please turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As, as Tim just read, and as we considered two weeks ago, Paul seeks in verses 1 through 15 to help the Corinthians see the extreme danger that they were in. It's almost as if Paul made a phone call into the bank vault and said, Hey, Corinthians, you've got to listen to me. 
Listen, because I have a divine jealousy for you. Verse 2. Listen, because you guys have accepted false teaching. You're being duped. Verse 4. Listen to me, because I'm superior to these super apostles, both in knowledge and in service. Verses 5 through 12. And, by the way, you, think, you clearly think your captors are amazing and wonderful, but... Verses 13 through 15, they're actually false apostles, deceitful workmen who are disguised as apostles of Christ, just like Satan is disguised as an angel of light. It's not going to end well for them or for you if you continue to follow them. So verses 1 through 15 of this chapter serves sort of like as a warm-up to what is often referred to as Paul's fool speech which begins in our text for this morning and continues on into chapter 12. So as we look at verses 16 to 33, there's two points, two simple points this morning that we'll consider. First, we must reject man-centered boasting. And second, we must embrace God-centered boasting. Follow along as I begin in verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Paul is clearly speaking here with irony in verse 16, just like he did in verse 1, which he seems to be repeating there. His point is that if the Corinthians can put up with the false teachers who are truly fools, then they ought to be able to put up with me when I play the fool. And I need to do so in order to expose the foolishness of my opponents. So Paul bends over backwards to make it abundantly clear that he does not want to stoop down to their level of boasting. But he realizes that he must do so in order to gain a hearing. Paul always sought to follow the example of Christ. But desperate situations demand desperate measures. And he was forced to temporarily follow the example of the super apostles and hope that the Corinthians would listen to him. Verse 20 shows us the extensive abuse that the Corinthians suffered from the false apostles. And this list, too, reveals why these, why these Corinthians really were not wise at all. In fact, they were actually fools for accepting these teachers. In effect, Paul says here with great sarcasm, you are so brilliant that you put up with fools while they exploit you. They make slaves of you. They were domineering over them. They devour you. Likely this would be financial exploitation. These guys were always happy to take their money. They take advantage of you. They're manipulators. They put on airs. They were exalting themselves at the expense of the Corinthians. They strike you in the face. That may have been physical, but, but probably was figurative, referring to any kind of humiliating treatment. 
So failing to discern the profound distinctions between the arrogant authority of the super-apostles and the humility, gentleness, and self-sacrificing devotion of Paul, the Corinthians chose exploiters as their leaders and models, and they blindly reveled in their own wisdom. The false teachers had taken them spiritually hostage and left them with spiritual bruises, and the Corinthians were utterly clueless. So with biting sarcasm in verse 21, Paul admits the shame he feels over being too weak to act like his opponents, saying in effect, isn't it just horrible of me that I've refused to treat you as kindly and as lovingly as they have? (laughs) This is striking sarcasm, isn't it? Paul uses it here in a very striking way. While driving in Kansas City on our recent ministry trip, Jolene saw a t-shirt that said, I speak fluent sarcasm. (laughs) And I suspect that some of us here this morning understand this language quite well and it may even be pretty good at using it. Should we find here in this justification for our sarcasm? See, see, it's here. It's in the Bible. The Apostle Paul used sarcasm, so mine must be godly. Perhaps not. One preacher helpfully suggested that we should recognize here the who, the when, and the why in Paul's choice of speech. The who. This sort of speech is not for searchers, the confused, not for children trying to figure things out, or for the brokenhearted. Paul reserved its use for wolves in sheep's clothing and those in danger of apostasy who needed their attention arrested. The when. Paul used this sarcasm when the gospel was at stake, when a very significant theological point couldn't be made any other way. Why? Paul used it because they weren't hearing any other way. Paul's sarcasm was the last resort to bring about change, not used to make himself look good or tear them down or get vengeance. So yes, there clearly is a proper place For sarcasm and thinking through Paul's usage here, I think is instructive. But since all of us will seldom, if ever, be in the same spot Paul was in, probably the most practical test that we can use to to determine whether or not our sarcasm is okay is Paul's words in Ephesians 4.29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, if we are going to be sarcastic, we should ask, does it build up? Does it give grace to the hearer? We really need to be careful and thoughtful about this. I'm number one in terms of need on this. We ought to always ask ourselves, does this give grace or Does this sarcasm really just make someone else look stupid and me look really, really smart? Paul proceeds in the second half of verse 21 through 23b to reluctantly boast like the super apostles. This is the boasting of a fool. 
it is the man-centered boasting that we must reject. So our first point then, we must reject man-centered boasting. Notice there at the end of verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So Paul boasts first here in his lineage, which in the ancient world was really, really, really important. And like a fool, Paul says, these super apostles don't have anything on me. I too am a full-blooded Hebrew. My parents on both sides were Jews. I'm also fluent in the Hebrew language and culture. I too am an Israelite, part of the people of God with all the rights, privileges, and heritage that that entails. And I too am an offspring of Abraham who can list as many Jewish qualifications as you want. Did Paul really take pride in his ethnic heritage? Did he really think that he was somebody special because of that? Not at all. Not at all. We know from his letter to the Philippians where he writes, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So this is a fool's boast because it proves nothing. And compared to Christ, it's garbage. Paul continues to boast as a fool in his accomplishments. You see there in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. So, Corinthians, you say these guys are servants of Christ? Well, I've actually already told you they're not, but according to your criteria, apparently they are. Okay, but I'm a better one. And, and I think we can see here why Paul says he's talking like a madman. Paul's talking here like somebody who's out of their mind. This is not normally how Paul talks. Boasting in who we are and what we have done is foolish because all that we are in everything that we are able to do is a gift from God. This boasting is according to the flesh. It's rooted in the world's values and it's devoid of the Spirit of God. So as we apply this, we ought to be, just like Paul, embarrassed by boasting about our strengths, education, skills, productivity, accomplishments, and the like. At times, I think, if we're honest, we would admit 
that we're simply too comfortable with this sort of boasting. And it can happen so naturally and be so common that we don't even realize that we're doing it. And isn't it true that social media doesn't really help us out much here? As it makes it really easy to boast about ourselves, all for the sake of just keeping our friends or our followers informed. Let's be honest. We care a lot about people's opinions of us. It's sort of as if we're in a courtroom every day, desperate to make our case, to defend our value, worth, and identity. And we do this by boasting, whether it be subtle or overt. Well, in Christ, Paul had come to experience freedom from the slavery of the approval of others. As he told the Corinthians in his first letter to them, chapter 4, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. You see, Paul knew that the Corinthian church could not justify him, and he knew he could not justify himself. Paul knew the one opinion that mattered at the end of the day was God's opinion of him. And so he had no need to brag about himself. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, destroys our pride, and it removes any reason to boast in ourselves. The gospel shows us that we were born into sin. Scripture says that no one is righteous. Now, we may look good in comparison to other people. And some may even be impressed by what they see. But all that matters is how God sees us. And he's not impressed. Not even a little bit. Because of our sin, God sees us as guilty in objects of his holy wrath. But God sent Jesus Christ to live the life of perfect obedience that we could never live and to die the death that we deserved. Jesus performed where we failed. And three days later, God raised him from the dead and he offers to us full forgiveness for our rebellion and eternal life as a free gift. We can't do anything to earn it. It's a gift that must be accepted through repentance and faith. And so when we're truly affected by this gospel, we realize why there's absolutely no grounds for boasting in ourselves. And we say with Paul that our boast is in Jesus Christ. So I wonder this morning, are you trusting in this gospel? Have you come to see yourself as a sinner, deserving God's wrath? Have you turned from your sin, embraced by faith, Christ crucified and risen? If you have not, perhaps you have questions about this news, please talk with somebody today. Let us know of your interest in looking into this further, and we'd be thrilled to do that. We desire for you to know of the freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And for all who are Christians here, we should recognize that all of our human boasting about how great we are is totally incompatible with the gospel that we claim to believe. 
since we're approved and accepted by God through Christ, we don't need the approval and acceptance of others. And therefore, we don't need to make sure they know how amazing and wonderful we are. When the God of the universe announces His assessment of us, how can we worry about what other people think? His opinion is the only one that matters. Our worth and our identity is in Christ. And by living by faith in that reality, we'll be kept from this foolish, man-centered boasting. As we pick back up here in verse 23, one commentator pointed out how it would have made sense for Paul to just proceed and show ways in which he was a superior servant of Christ. I've established more churches, preached the gospel in more lands, into more ethnic groups. I've traveled more miles, won more converts, written more books, raised more money, sat on more councils, seen more visions. In fact, this this sort of list of self-praise was very common in the Greco-Roman world. Augustus Caesar actually wrote a eulogy in his own honor in which he numbered his accomplishments. It's possible that Paul had that in mind. But instead of numbering off his exploits and his victories, Paul details his sufferings, his loss, his shame, and his defeats. At the end of verse 23, Paul's boasting shifts from the boasting of a fool to the boasting of Christ's apostle. So as we first must reject man-centered boasting, second, we must embrace God-centered boasting. Picking up at the end of verse 23. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near deaths. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I'm exhausted just reading that list. Lashes were the Jewish synagogue punishment, which, among other things, was inflicted for false teaching, blasphemy, and seriously breaking the law. Deuteronomy 25 states that 40 was the maximum that could be given under the law, but the Jews drew the limit at 39, just to make sure that they didn't go beyond. 13 were given on the front, 26 on the back. Beating with rods was a specifically Roman punishment, and there was no limit to the number that could be given. The account of Paul's stoning is in Acts 14, where he was taken outside the city of Lystra, pummeled with stones to the point that everybody thought he was dead. No airplanes meant traveling by ships, which were not nearly as safe. Ancient writers called ships well-crafted tombs. And a sailor was a neighbor of death. 
Paul wrote this before the shipwreck recorded in Acts 27, so he must have survived at least four. He was in danger from rivers and robbers as he traveled on land, danger from his own people as on multiple occasions the Jews plotted against his life. He was in danger in the city, wilderness, and sea, which pretty much means he was in danger everywhere, all the time. Danger from false brothers who claimed to be Christians but were not, like the super apostles in Corinth. And toil, hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. Paul labored night and day in order to both support himself and preach, while the uncertainties of his work and travel meant many a day of hunger and thirst. And when we think about all this, it's no shock that he didn't sleep very well. I mean, imagine what Paul's body would have looked like after all this. This is not even an exhaustive list. But there's more. Verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Commentators suggest that Paul placing this last in his list means that he is emphatically stressing that his continual concern over the churches he started is even more difficult than any of his physical sufferings. Imagine that. More difficult than all these things he's enduring physically. Paul's greatest pains were heart pains over his people. His greatest boast is his constant worry over their welfare. Paul Paul empathized and identified with those who were weak. And he was deeply affected when any believer got tripped up and made to stumble into sin. One has stated that Paul burns when he sees righteousness in ruins and believers morally battered by the servants of Satan. Many suspect that Paul started 14 to 20 churches. And having founded a congregation, Paul didn't just forget about them as he moved on. He continued to feel the responsibility for their spiritual welfare, which in him then stoked a sense of anxiety, which which I think is very similar to the jealousy that we see here in verse 2. The churches Paul started were made up largely of new Christians. They were full of fighting and backbiting. They tolerated false teaching. They were prone to legalism over here and license over there. Some would take little doctrinal issues and make them a really big deal. Others would take huge issues and not really care much at all about them. And the work never seemed to let up. Work that was in addition to his day job of making tents. He had letters to write, visits to make, money to raise. He had to assign leaders to various churches, manage affairs from a distance while juggling all these different accusations of playing favorites. He had to respond to harsh criticism like what was coming from the Corinthians and on and on and on and on it goes. And perhaps maybe, just maybe we can understand at least a little bit why there was no burden on Paul like the weight of caring for his churches. 
what a blessing it is to have pastors who are not indifferent, but like Paul, are deeply concerned about our lives and ministry together. This is a gift from God that we ought to recognize and be thankful for. Now, now I know that I am one of them, and I readily confess my need to grow in this regard. But I'm also a member of this church, just like you, who has four elders caring for me and my family. We all ought to consider the pressures they face and the burdens they bear for us. And we should regularly pray for them as they strive in all of their sin and weakness to faithfully care for our flock by God's grace. Concluding this section, Paul says in verse 30, If I boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This event is described in Acts chapter 9. And it's likely been told in many Sunday school classes, complete with flannel graph, in a way that describes Paul as the hero who narrowly escapes in a basket over the wall. But I'm not so sure that's how Paul would teach this story. Paul recalled this event with shame. He had set out for the city of Damascus with the intent of rounding up Christians. God met him on the road, and he left the city not as a hunter, but as the hunted. His approach to the city was arrogant, his exit humiliating. Hiding in a basket is not something that somebody with power would want to do. It was a sign of weakness. It's certainly possible that Paul viewed this incident as a sort of paradigm for his life, as weakness was at the heart of his call from the very beginning. And it's also likely that Paul mentioned his cowering descent in a basket from the wall of a city as a contrast to the daring ascent of the wall by Roman soldiers that the Corinthians would have been very familiar with. The corona moralis, Latin for wall crown, was one of the highest Roman military honors, and it was presented to the first soldier to go up and over the wall of an enemy city. It was made with gold, and as you can see, it was fashioned to look like the wall of a fortified city. Well, far from being the first one up the wall, Paul was the first one down. The reversal of military bravery and yet another token of his humiliation and weakness. So as we think about here, Paul's boasting in his weaknesses. There's some ways in which I I think it directly applies to us. 
first, this, this boasting of Paul and his weaknesses ought to affect our view of suffering. should affect our view of suffering. The super apostles were telling the Corinthians that they could have the crown without the cross. They were saying you could have your best life now with, without the suffering part. That is simply not true. They were being fed a lie. We follow a Savior who suffered and was killed. So we must then never be surprised by suffering. And we ought to be prepared as followers of Christ to suffer. Now our list of sufferings won't look much like Paul's or even like that of Christians in difficult or hostile places around the world who are being persecuted. The point isn't that we need to have Paul's list of suffering. It's that whatever suffering we do face, we must embrace and not resist or walk away from in shame. And in a world that values comfort, ease, and convenience, it's good to regularly ask ourselves, how, how am I suffering for Christ? What does it cost us to be a Christian? In what specific ways am I being inconvenienced in the service of others? How are we sacrificing our money, our desires, our agenda, our comfort for the cause of Christ? Second, Paul's God-centered boast here ought to affect our view of weakness our view of weakness, which, of course, we know relates very much to suffering. We all have weaknesses. I don't think that, I don't have to convince you of that, right? We we all have them. What does your list look like? Perhaps it's physical pain, sickness, disease, or some sort of physical, mental limitation or disadvantage. Maybe it's an emotional pain or a propensity to fear, anxiety, or depression. Perhaps your weakness is social awkwardness or a struggle to fit in. Maybe it's a relational struggle or a financial struggle. Your weakness might be confusion, loneliness, doubts, or a particular temptation. Our weakness really can be any hardship or anything in our lives that we wish was different, anything we would change if only we could. Our list will be very different than Paul's, but how we see our weaknesses and how we respond to them should be the same. Paul chooses to boast in his weaknesses. And so should we. Does that seem crazy to you? Let's be honest. This has to naturally strike us as a little bit crazy. Why would we want to boast in our weaknesses? And how on earth is it even possible? Two suggestions that I trust will be helpful. First, In order to boast in our weaknesses, we must embrace them. We must embrace them. This isn't at all natural. And the last thing 
I think I want to do is embrace my weaknesses. I'd much rather get rid of them. Go away. Leave. But even as we may appropriately seek to eliminate a weakness, and and there are certainly ways in which it's right and appropriate to, to seek to eliminate a weakness. As we do that, even as we pray that God would take it away, Paul will do that in chapter 12. We must see our weaknesses as a gift given to us by God for the purpose of making less of us and more of Him. As one has said, weaknesses don't disqualify us from being a Christian. They are our badge of honor because they are the platform for God to show His strength, His provision, His mercy, His grace, His wisdom. I think one of the strongest indications that we are embracing our weaknesses is the willingness to talk with other people about them. Our world tells us that we should be ashamed of our weaknesses and do everything that we can to hide them. Nobody needs to know that. Why don't, you don't need to talk to anybody about that. But how different it should be for the church. We recognize that because of sin, we're all broken. We're all weak. We're all needy. We understand that weaknesses are a normal and significant part of what God is doing to sanctify us. And so rather than hide our weaknesses, as the people of God, we ought to embrace them. And as we embrace them, we should talk openly and transparently about them. Not out of complaint or with a navel-gazing self-pity that is just seeking to get other people to feel sorry for us. We should talk about them because we desire for other people to see God's strength, provision, mercy, and grace in our weakness. And as we share, we ask for help. We ask for help because we know that we need it. So in order to boast in our weaknesses, first of all, we must embrace them. Second, we must look to Christ. We must look to Christ. Just as looking to Christ in the gospel destroys our man-centered boasting, it also provides the motivation necessary for God-centered boasting. We are able to boast in our weaknesses when we recognize that in them, in our weaknesses, we are identifying with Christ, who knew weaknesses even more than we can ever know. According to the prophet Isaiah, Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and despised. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 states that Jesus had to be made like us in our weakness so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. And since He himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. And then Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 states that Jesus understands our weaknesses. He understands them. For he faced all the same testings we do, 
yet he did not sin. And because of this, because Jesus has experienced our weaknesses, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, in our union with Christ, we share in the fellowship of His sufferings, and that gives our weaknesses meaning, and it gives them purpose. And because we're united to Christ, we can receive the divine help that we so desperately need to persevere in our weaknesses, and to glorify God in them. So in this ancient letter of Paul playing a fool and getting really sarcastic and striving to help and correct the Corinthians, we see that we must reject foolish, man-centered boasting that exalts ourselves And we must do that by looking to Christ, knowing that in Him, God has accepted us. And in Christ, we find our value and our identity. And we must embrace God-centered boasting. Boasting that points to our weaknesses, boasting in our weaknesses. And in that, we must look to Christ, who willingly took on weakness to purchase our salvation. Look to Christ who understands our weakness. And look to Christ who promises to provide all the mercy and grace that we need. That's why we love Him. That's why we give our lives to Him. That's why we boast of Him. Father, we confess of the pride in our hearts, which so naturally and easily causes us to make much of ourselves to others. Forgive us, Father, of this sinful, foolish boasting. And may our understanding of the gospel and identity with Christ affect change as we realize we don't need the acceptance and approval of others. And Father, we thank you for Christ who chose to lay aside the glories of heaven and take on weakness for us. Thank you for a high priest who has been touched by the weaknesses and struggles we experience. Thank you, Jesus, for knowing us and for understanding. And thank you for the grace and mercy that you give us Please pour it out for all those here who are experiencing very distinctly and painfully their weakness. Grant them, Father, grace and mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored, you would be made much of, and you'd be glorified in their pain. And Lord, for any here who don't know of Christ, who are boasting of themselves, whether they understand it or not, are resting on their own goodness and accomplishments to gain your favor. Father, please open their eyes to see their need for Christ. 
Please save them from themselves and from their sin for their good and for your glory. We ask that you would do this all through the name of Christ. Amen.